Happy Easter. My name's Christian. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you are here, and we want you to come back this fall. As you just saw, we're building a building as we speak as a church. We don't believe we're qualified um, to really help this community, but we're willing if God will use us. We believe we've been blessed not just for ourselves, but to bless the community at large, and we believe God has called us to help. So many of you are here for the very, very first time. Thank you for being here. When we open our building in the fall, we want you to come back because we're building it for you and your friends and your family and your neighbors. If you want to keep track of the building process, you can follow us on Facebook. Um, We'll be putting stuff on there and you'll be able to understand exactly when our grand opening season is going to be so you can come and be a part of that. I actually, my wife made me get back onto Facebook because of our building after about three years off of Facebook. Somebody said, why did you take three years off of Facebook? Because it's Facebook. Um, And I kind of hate Facebook, honestly. But Daniel said, if you go on Facebook, you'll be able to tell people about the building and when it's opening up. So just a couple weeks ago, after a three-year absence, um, my Facebook page kind of reopened. And it hadn't been open an hour before I got a message from a friend that I haven't talked to since high school. This will be my 20-year anniversary of graduating from high school, our 20-year reunion. So somebody I haven't talked to in 20 years messaged me because he saw our church, he saw the building project, and just said, hey, that's awesome what you're doing, so good um, to see that you know, you're preaching the gospel and your church is doing well. And I laughed with Danielle, and I was with my kids. I said, this, this guy, who I haven't talked to in 20 years, um, when I think about him... I think about one of the most epic stories of my teenage years um, because the friend who, who reached out to me on Facebook lived about two miles from one of our hot spots that we used to hang out in. I don't know if you're like me. I grew up in a really small town. When you grow up in a really small town, you find weird places to hang out in where the cops won't find you. Uh, I, you know, I won't go into detail of what we did, but there was this old cemetery that basically was in the middle of this cornfield that we would hang out in, um, doing things you shouldn't talk about on Easter, a couple miles from this guy's house. And it supposedly had this haunted aspect to it. There was a grave in the very back of the, of the graveyard called Elizabeth's Grave um, that supposedly was haunted. And we would go time and time again, um, you know, to go you know, try to conjure up ghosts or you know, do, do, do stuff stupid teenagers do. And on one occasion... Um, I still don't know what I saw, but a group of friends and I were there when we saw something that was beyond normal. It seemed paranormal. We saw something that was beyond natural. It seemed supernatural. And as I was kind of telling my kids a story, I was kind of laughing to myself. And I said, you know, this is just absurd. I, I mean, it's just absurd to even think about. It's absurd to even tell you this story. But the absurdity of this crazy story is the certainty of this exciting morning that things, after they die, come back to life. And that's what we're celebrating on Easter Sunday, that things that have died can come back to life. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that things come back to life after they die? Let me go a step further. Do you believe that you are going to come back to life after you die? And let me take it a step further. Do you believe that one day after you die, you're going to live forever and an eternity that the Bible describes as heaven? Because those, those are important questions. Those may be the only questions that kind of unite us all, because we've got a bunch of different people in the auditorium that, that don't have a lot of stuff in common. I mean, we, there's men and there's women here. There's young people and there's old people here. We've got some Democrats and Republicans and some independents sitting in here today. We probably have some Protestants and some Catholics in the room today. 
We probably have some deeply religious people, and I'm sure we have some atheists who are hanging out with us this morning. We've got people from Kansas and people who are from Missouri. We've got people who root for the Mizzou Tigers and people who root for the Kansas Jayhawks. God rest their soul. After last night, I mean, you know, we, we, we've got a bunch of different... We got a bunch of different types of people in the room today. But one thing that we all have in common is all of us at some point are going to leave this world and maybe live again, maybe live forever, maybe go to heaven. Is that something that you're absolutely sure of or something that you wonder about from time to time? Because we've planned this service for now almost four months for you to answer those questions. Are you going to live again after you die? Do you know where you're going to live again after you die? And have you even thought about that? Is that important to you? Those are important questions. And those are questions that Jesus had to answer before the very first Easter. He had to prove that he had some kind of power over death before he could go through the whole Easter experience himself and have people follow him. If you haven't already, I want you to reach inside your bulletin and pull out your sermon notes. It'll help you do two things. If you like to take notes and follow along and learn, it'll help you do that. If you want to know when the sermon is going to be over, this will help you do that too, because the closer we get to the end, the closer you are to lunch. So pull out the thing. It'll be good for you either way. And if you have a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 11. And basically what we're learning is that the first Easter invitation ever given, the first man who ever invited anyone to celebrate the resurrection was Jesus. Jesus had been telling his closest friends that he was going to die, but that he was going to raise from the dead. Every time he said it, the disciples would get together and say, what do you think he means? And one of them would say, I don't know. And they would say, me neither. And they'd just keep following along. They didn't understand the concept because they'd never really seen it happen. And as we look at the Easter buildup, basically for Jesus' friends, his disciples, to have any hope that he would really rise from the dead after he was crucified, he had to prove to them that he had the power to make a dead thing live again. And that's where we enter John chapter 11. Jesus is moving in his life towards the crucifixion, but he's got to stop on the way there to prove to his followers, listen, I've been telling you I'm going to die and then I'm going to live again. You need to understand I've got the ability to do this. I'm going to prove that to you so that when it happens to me, You'll live in expectancy of a dead thing living again. So John chapter 11, and we're going to encounter what I call two things in today's text, Easter problems and Easter promises. We're going to look at some Easter problems and we're going to look at some Easter promises for Jesus proving that he had power over death. Now, the first problem before we enter the text today is this. You need something to die to prove you can bring it back to life. And none of Jesus' disciples were willing to volunteer for that. Jesus, in order to prove to people that he could raise something from the dead, he needed something to die, but that's not something most people will sign up for. In John chapter 11, verses 1 through 15, we found a scenario that matched what Jesus needed, though. It says, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. That was a few chapters back when he had visited their house. So... The sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. That was a little south of where he was hanging out in Galilee. Verse eight, but rabbi, that means teacher, they said. A short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and you're going to go back. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime won't stumble, for they're seen by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, 
but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So about five years ago, Danielle and I set out on a journey. Danielle's my wife. She was the blonde who was up here singing today um, to start this church. We sold, uh, we sold our house. We sold our cars. We quit our jobs. We bought a foreclosed house in Missouri, and we moved over here to take a year getting to know people to see if anyone wanted to start a church to bless the community like we thought God had planted into our hearts. And there are basically two ways to move to a new community and start a church. One is to move to a community, um, get full-time jobs, figure out how to take care of yourself, and in your spare time, meet people and figure out if you can start a church. The other way is to move to a community and to do ministry full-time and to find as many friends and families and churches and people who believe in you as possible to help support you, to do as many odd jobs on the side as you can to make ends meet, but to spend the bulk of your time doing ministry so you can build a church. And we said, we're going to take the second route. We're going to commit ourselves fully to doing ministry and just trust that God will send people to help us and work odd jobs. And we did for a year, worked random jobs from painting to, um, you know, to doing office work. Uh, One of my main sources of income in that year was I I became like a funeral home preacher. I had a friend who owned a funeral home. He said, Christian, I have a lot of families that don't have a pastor to preach a loved one's funeral. So anytime I have a family um, that comes, it doesn't have a pastor. Will, will you preach the funeral? Um, he said, you know, then, then I can, I can help you have work and you can do ministry. And I said, sure. So for like nine months, I mean, I preached dozens and dozens and dozens of funerals. I, there are some days I would go to the funeral home in the morning and stay there all day and just meet with families, kind of counseling them through the, the grieving process and then preaching the loved one's funeral and doing the graveside. I mean, that's what I did for a year. And friends and family would find out that I was doing random things to try to make ends meet so that I could start a church. And I had a friend approach me one day and they said, hey, I see you're trying to make money so you can get this church started. I said, yeah. He said, have you ever heard of quintiles? And I said, "Um, no, what's that? They said, well, quintiles is a company in Kansas City. He explained it to me roughly that basically will experiment on your body with drugs that have not been approved yet, but they'll pay you for it. And I said, all right, I'm in. Where, you know, where do I, where do I sign up? I like to eat at Chick-fil-A at least once a week and not peanut butter and jelly every day. So I'll I'll do it. So they sent me the stuff, and I started looking through some of these things. And the only problem with the quintile studies, from my perspective, is every one at the end you had to sign that, now this may kill you, um, but if not, you know, you'll get 1900 bucks and you can come stay all night. And I thought, you know, I'm not, I wasn't willing to sign up for anything that was going to kill me. So Jesus needed something to die to prove that he could bring it back to life, but Lazarus didn't sign up for this event. Lazarus was not a lab rat. This wasn't an experiment, but it was an experience that was going to change everything. Lazarus wasn't a test case of whether or not Jesus could. Lazarus was a scenario that Jesus stepped into to show what he was capable of doing. And Jesus was going to prove through what we read that He could bring life from death. Why is this important? Because people need life. People need not just physical life, but they need need life in all kinds of areas of their existence. You need to know Jesus can bring life to something that's dead or appears to be dying. Some of you have marriages that as you look at them, you can't find a pulse anymore. Jesus can bring life to your marriage. 
Some of you have kids that you dreamed would do one thing in life and they've gotten sidetracked and they're just struggling through life and friendships and school and you're watching your children's dreams slowly die. Jesus can bring life to that situation. Some of you are looking at your financial scenario and you're saying, there's no way out of this hole, this is killing me. But Jesus can bring life to your financial situation. Some of you live in such emotional despair and discouragement and anxiety that you feel like a dead man walking, but Jesus can bring life to that scenario. You see, Jesus is going to prove through this scenario that he can bring life from dead things. We've all got things in our life that appear to be dead or they seem like they're dying. But Jesus has a chance to prove that he can bring life from death. If you had one thing that Jesus could make alive for you today, what would it be? What area in your life, your family, your health, your friendships, relationships that appears to be dying, if you could ask Jesus to speak into it, what one thing would you say, Jesus, if you can really move, make this dead thing alive again because it would change everything? Some of you say, well, I would do that if I thought it was possible. But the second Easter problem and the reality of John chapter 11 is, unfortunately, there's massive spiritual disappointment in a broken world. If you haven't experienced it yet, you will. If you haven't been disappointed by a church or a ministry, you've not gone to church or been involved in ministry long enough. If you've not been let down by some pastor or spiritual teacher, you've not known one closely enough. And if you've not placed your faith in Jesus to do a miracle and not had that miracle evolved, then you've not really prayed big enough in your life. The reality is there's massive spiritual disappointment in a broken world, and there was massive spiritual disappointment in this narrative. As we pick up in verse 17, Jesus is finally now at the town where his friends lived, where his friend Lazarus has died, and what we read is a lot of disappointment. It says, on Jesus' arrival, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I want you to glance down to verse 28. They had a little conversation. It says, after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher's here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? I don't know if you realized it, but both sisters and all their friends upon seeing Jesus didn't say, Jesus is here. They said something more like this. Look who finally showed up. The sisters who were friends with Jesus didn't wrap their arms around his neck and say, thanks for coming. They said, where were you? Martha, Mary, and their friends all had the same first reaction. If you'd have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And some of you, when you celebrate Easter and hear talk about Jesus, you go back to a Lazarus situation in your mind where Jesus did not show up on time. And when you hear about Jesus raising from the dead today, you're like, oh, look who showed up. On Easter, look who raises his head because he wasn't there when I needed him 
most. Maybe this is you. And maybe you've got a really good reason for not following Jesus because of the spiritual disappointment that you've experienced in this very broken world. Or maybe you were, at one point in your life, a follower of Jesus. You followed closely. You loved him. You had a friendship with him like they did. But you've grown distant because life went from good to very bad very fast. And you just figured somewhere Jesus stepped out and he didn't care anymore. And you've been really bothered by that. You know, one of my favorite things to do spiritually, there's a verse in the book of Romans that says that God kind of plants signs within creation to remind us of who he is and to show us that, that there's a God in the world. Romans 120 basically says God puts things in creation that speak to our soul. Not to our eyes, not to our ears, but there are things in creation that speak to our soul. So I'm kind of a feeler of nature. When I get up in the Rocky Mountains, and I love the Rocky Mountains, I would almost rather be in Breckenridge skiing than almost anywhere else on planet Earth any day if my family's with me. When I'm in the mountains and I'm looking at the majesty of creation, like my soul feels it. When I'm on the beach, and I love to go to the beach with my family, when I'm on the beach and I'm watching the ocean and I see the magnitude and the power of the ocean, it speaks to my soul. When I see a, a beautiful sunrise or a, a beautiful sunset, it kind of speaks to my soul. And the Bible tells me in the New Testament that God gives me those glimpses to remind me of him. So I'm kind of weird. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I've, you know, I've got kind of this lifelong relationship with Jesus. I, you know, I see a lot of things as spiritual intimacy. So every time I see something that's just beautiful in nature, every time I see something that speaks to my soul, I see that as a sign from God to me, and I always kind of whisper under my breath, thank you, Jesus. Just a weird thing. If I'm, if I'm driving towards a beautiful sunset, oh, thank you, Jesus. So I'm driving into a beautiful sunrise in the mountain, oh, thank you, Jesus. And the other day, I was driving down Hook Road towards 291. Those of you who live in Lee Summit will know where that is. And there must have been thousands and thousands and thousands of birds sitting on the power lines on the right side of the road there as you head towards 291. I mean, thousands. And as I was driving down, kind of driving into a sunrise, beautiful sky, like the birds took off at once and they looked like synchronized swimmers. I mean, there had to be a thousand of them. They looked like a cloud moving together. And they kind of like just did the wave. They flew out over the field. And then they came back and went all right back on the wire where they came from. And I thought, that's unbelievable. And I was like, that's a God moment. Like God is showing me the beauty of nature. And as I was driving, they passed over my car and began to do it again. And literally right as I was celebrating this moment in my spirit, I was like, thank you, Jesus. They must have all simultaneously decided to take a dump because it was like, (laughs) it was like it was raining milk. I mean, I had to go wash my car. Hundreds of birds simultaneously took a dump on my car. And I literally went in my breath, you know, from thank you, Jesus, to holy, 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 Lord. I mean, I know it's Easter. I promise me you didn't just say a bad word in your head. It's Easter. But some of you have had those experiences spiritually. You're right in the middle of a thank you, Jesus, when life just T-bones you. And it's like, where was God in that? I mean, I was having this intimate moment spiritually. I I was reading my Bible more than I ever read the Bible. I was engaged in church more than I was ever in church. And all of a sudden, I'm diagnosed with cancer. All of a sudden, my mom or dad has a heart attack. All of a sudden, I lose my job. It's like out of nowhere, life just dumps on you. And we see that one of the greatest problems of Easter is the amount of spiritual disappointment in our world. But you've got to realize Easter is not a fairy tale with no disappointment. 
Easter is not a story that has no death. Instead, disappointment and death come face to face with Jesus on Easter. And the result is hope. Disappointment is there. Death is there. But hope is there in the person of Jesus. And this is the Easter promise. The Easter promise is Jesus. And really in two ways. One, we see through this narrative a relationship with Jesus brings hope to a hopeless situation. Martha and Jesus begin to have a conversation, a, a dialogue that is, that is hopeless. It's hard. Look at John 11, verse 21. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother's going to rise again. And Martha answered, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection in the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now I want to stop right there because I believe that's one of the rudest questions that any human being has ever asked to another human being. I want you to look at what Jesus says and I want you to put it into context, okay? Jesus says in John eleven twenty six, whoever lives by believing in me, will never die. That's a theological statement. But then comes the question, do you believe this? How could Jesus have asked Martha that? I mean, Jesus knew that Martha and Mary and Lazarus believed in him. He knew they loved him. He had dinner in their home. They were friends. Jesus cried when he went to the tomb. Jesus knew he'd been dead and buried for four days, yet here he tries to make this spiritual point to this grieving sister. You know, she says, Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. And, you know, one day you can make this okay. And Jesus is like, oh, well, you know, if you live and believe in me, you never die. And she's probably thinking, okay, I really don't know what that means, but okay. And then he asks her, do you believe this? This seems rude to me. I mean, I I think if I would put myself in this situation, and, and I don't mean this heretical, but... You would think you would want to slap Jesus for saying, it's just, it seems so cold. Whoever lives believing me will never die. Do you believe this? I can't imagine Martha didn't say, how could I believe that? He's dead. What do you mean he never dies and do I believe it? It's a question that doesn't even make sense. But Martha doesn't do that. She doesn't turn and run. She doesn't get angry. She doesn't even raise her voice. Instead, she goes and gets her sister and says, Let's be with Jesus. Look at the question. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? She answered the question indirectly. She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come into the world. After she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. said, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she basically said, "I I don't know. But I know that you being here helps me. I know you're the Messiah. I believe you're the Savior. I clearly don't have all the answers for the world, and I don't, I'm not even really sure what you're asking me. But don't leave, and let me go get my sister and let her know that you're here. You see, being around Jesus, even without all the answers, brings spiritual comfort and spiritual direction to a hard life. Martha said to Jesus, I don't even know what you mean, but I, but I want you here because you, you being here brings me comfort, even though I don't have all the answers I'm looking for. When I was in seventh grade, I had a friend in ninth grade. His name was Joel, and he died over Thanksgiving break. I remember driving back from my grandmother's house and getting home, and there was a message on our answering machine. If you're 
older than 30, you know what that means, um, from someone telling my dad what had happened because Joel played football for my dad. And a few days after Thanksgiving break, we had the funeral. It was, it was the first death that I had ever experienced. It was the first friend that I had ever had that died, and I was young. I was 12. And I'll never forget, we went to the funeral. My dad was a football coach, pretty, um, pretty influential guy in that community, and the, the family asked my dad to share the message at the funeral. So they sat our family, myself, my two sisters, my mom and my dad, up front with the family. And my dad gave the message, and as, as they dismissed people, at the end of the service, I'd never been to a funeral. I didn't know what protocol was. I didn't know what to expect. I happened to be, because of where I was sitting, I happened to be as a 12-year-old, the first person out of the auditorium. And I didn't know that at the end of a funeral, they would take the casket out and they would open it up and it would be there so you could pass by it one more time. So as a 12-year-old, not really knowing what to understand and going by myself, my dad got stopped by somebody who wanted to you know, thank him for the message and that kind of held the lineup. And I found myself walking out and I'm all alone in this church foyer that I'd never been in with the open casket of my friend. And it impacted me deeply. I, I'm, I may be the world's worst artist, like my stick figures are bad. But that picture of Joel laying in that casket is so vivid in my memory today at 38. If I could draw, I could draw it, I mean, identically. It's seared in my mind. I've stood there for probably was 15 or 20 seconds, but it shook me. I remember that night going back to my house and I was afraid to go to sleep. My sisters shared a room. Obviously, my mom and dad shared a room and I was by myself. And that started about six weeks of me waiting till everyone else went to sleep. And then I would get my, kind of my blanket and my pillow and I would either sneak into my sister's room and I would sleep on their floor or I would go downstairs and I would sneak into my mom and dad's room and I would sleep on their floor because I just didn't want to be by myself. You see, the picture at Easter is life is going to go wrong, life's going to disappoint you, but you never have to be alone. And the cool picture of Easter is not that we sneak into some place we feel safe, but Jesus on Easter, according to Hebrews 13.5, for those who have ever been disappointed spiritually, for those who have ever felt abandoned spiritually, here's what the Bible says. God says, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. That night you're crying on your bed because it's the first night alone after you and your spouse have separated. You feel all by yourself. Jesus says, I'm sleeping on the floor. I say, I got you. You're not alone. That long car ride home after you've gotten disappointing news at work or maybe you've been let go from your job and it's the longest, hardest day of your life and that drive seems to take forever. Jesus says, you're not alone on that day. I'm right there in the car with you. Sitting in the hospital room when you get the bad news or in a doctor's office when you get a bad news and you're all by yourself, Jesus said, you need to understand, I have pulled my my blanket down from heaven in my pillow and I'm just going to follow you around and make sure you're never alone. And this is what Martha and Mary experienced on this day with their brother. Tragedy had struck, but Jesus being there made everything strangely feel better. There's a verse in Isaiah that talks about God holding our hand like a parent holds their child's hand. He says, from the Lord your God, Isaiah 41, 13, who takes hold of your right hand and who says to you, do not fear, I'll help you. Every time in scripture, God's pictured holding our hand, it's always always our right hand. So there's moments today, even at 38, where I feel alone, where I feel scared, where I really need to know God is there, where in prayer or just riding along or saying, I'll just squeeze my right hand thinking, God, if you're there, you're you're saying you're holding this one. So is that kind of weird? Probably. Is it comforting? 
Does it bring hope? Yeah. Because if God is real and he's there and he's holding on, think about it, parents, when you've taken your kids to a big stadium or an amusement park and it gets real crowded, what do your kids do? They just reach up and grab your hand. Something about being connected to dad just makes everything okay. And when Jesus showed up, it was like God offering his hand to hurting people, saying, I I know this hurts, but you're not alone. A relationship with Jesus brings hope, even in the midst of hopelessness. And then finally, belief in Jesus, at least in the life of Lazarus, brings life from death. This is the point of Easter. Belief in Jesus brings life from death. And Jesus knew this all along. Look at verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 11, if you still have your Bible. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Flip over to verse 38, if you would. Jesus has now walked to the tomb with the sisters and their friends. And it says, Jesus, John eleven thirty eight. once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been there four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. You know, my dad coached me in football in high school. And my dad has a whistle in a way that he yells my name, that if my dad, who lives just about an hour south of Chicago, if he whistled like right now, I think I'd hear it. Like, do any of you have somebody like that? They've got such a distinct call for you. I feel like I could hear my dad whistle and yell my name any place. When I went on to play college football, my dad would travel around. I remember playing the University of South Florida. They play in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers Stadium, the whole 72,000 people. My dad was up on the 50-yard line, kind of underneath the deck. And every time I came on or off the field, I could hear him whistling and yelling my name in the midst of tens of thousands of people because my brain has been trained to hear my father. And I read this story about Jesus walking to the tomb of Lazarus and saying, Lazarus. And I wonder sometimes, I've never heard Jesus say my name, but I wonder if my soul is conditioned to know it. And if one day in the future, there's a day where Jesus is going to speak from heaven and say, Christian, come home. And I will instantly, like I know my dad's whistle, know that Jesus is calling me from this life to eternal life. You see, that's the belief that I have for my eternity. What's your belief? You know, my belief in eternity was strengthened a little over two years ago by a man in our church by the name of Ricky Hicks. A couple weeks before Christmas, two years ago, Ricky and his wife, Tina, actually came right where those steps are. We had kind of a come-forward invitation at the end for people who needed to pray, and Ricky and his wife, Tina, were there, and they were kind of crying, so I went down um, and said, guys, what's going on? How can I pray for you? And Ricky said, Pastor Christian, um, they just diagnosed me with stage four cancer, and it's bad. And we prayed that day. And then in January, we got through Christmas. And in the middle of January, he was going to start chemotherapy treatment. So his family came and we prayed over him with some of our elders and our pastors before he started his chemotherapy treatment, just trusting that God would deliver him. And then he started his chemotherapy treatments. And after his first one, I got a call that I had to go to the hospital. Chris Zerby, who's one of the men in our church, who's one of our leaders, called and said, Ricky had his, his first treatment. It went bad. You got to get up to the hospital. Something's wrong. 
And I remember walking into Lee Summit Medical Center off of 50 and Todd George Road. And Ricky was sitting on the couch in his hospital room. He had his Bible open to John chapter 11. He looked bad. And I said, Rick, what's going on, man? What's the, what's the prognosis? He said, Pastor Christian, they're saying it's, it's not good. But he said, God is speaking to me that it's going to be okay. So tell me what you mean. And he opened his Bible to John chapter 11, verse 4. And he said, here's the word that God has given me for this cancer. This sickness will not end in death. It's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. And he so encouraged me that day that I thought God's going to heal him. God has spoken to him that he's going to heal him. And I left that day thinking just a matter of time and he'll be okay. Two weeks later, he ended up in hospice care. The family called and said, if you're going to say goodbye, you need to come now. And I took my Bible and I went over to Kansas City Hospice House off of Holmes Road. And I walked in. Rick was in and out. He woke up and I said, man, Rick, so sorry. He said, why are you sorry? And I had my Bible and I opened to John eleven four, and I said, well, I know the Lord told you that this sickness would not end in death and that that's not the case. And he smiled at me and he started laughing. And he said, Pastor Christian, this sickness ain't going to end in death. So what do you mean? He said, Pastor Christian, either I'm going to get healthy here or I'm going to get healthy in heaven but I ain't dying because I believe in Jesus. Man, it so encouraged my heart to hear someone who was ready to go home say, I believe in something that's given me total peace and I'm ready to go. I want you to hear this story through the lens of Ricky's son, J.R., before we conclude our services today. A lot of people say, man, your dad went out like a champ. You know, if I, and they say it like this, when I go out, I want to go out like that. But after college, I was talking to my dad about what's next. And my dad knew the degree I got. He knew that I, um, I love working out. Outside of football, I love working out. That was, my, that was my passion. So my dad was like, if, if you're good as you say you are, then let's open up a gym. So next thing I knew, me and my dad, we'd opened up, it was um, Whole Armor, Whole Armor Sports and Performance. We, we'd been in business, business was rolling. Because during that time also as me uh, owning the gym, I was working, working with my dad in construction. We were doing underground cable for Google Fiber. And he always kept complaining about stomach pain, stomach pain, stomach pains. And I'm thinking, you know, just drink some water. You know, we out here dehydrated and stuff. He's like, no, but it feels like cramps. I said, yeah, for cramps, you might be de- dehydrated. And, you know, he, he would come home, go at night and be like, man, I'm not feeling good. So him and my mom go to the emergency room. They would look at him, run tests. They was giving him just pills and different things. And he was just like, man, T, they're not, they're not getting it right because I'm not, I'm not feeling any better. He asked them to do further tests. And they start sending him to KU, KU Medical for, uh, for cancer treatments. He went back for another test and they said it was gone. And I was at the gym when he found out this news that it was it was gone. So he was calling me. He's like, "See, like God is good. He can he can deliver you out of everything. Just just stay encouraged. Use my story as your testimony." Like, Man, I, I I couldn't do anything but believe it. That it passed, and two weeks later was Thanksgiving, and he got a phone call 
You know, he had, he was, I, and I know, I know, I knew my dad very well and I knew his emotions and I can see it in his eyes. Something was wrong, but he wasn't going to tell me. That's the, that's the day, that Sunday, he went to the altar, him and my mom, and they asked Christian to come down and pray. And I think that's when Christian, he had shared with Christian what was going on. You know, he said it was stage four cancer and it was back. I'm like, man, stage four cancer, that's something serious. You just don't, you just don't miraculously recover from that. So we were driving back home from church and he was telling me how he was complaining about stomach pains again and everything. Like, man, he's never going to get better. This is just going to hurt him. And so I got him, got him back home. I helped him in the house. At this point, he's just weak. He couldn't, he couldn't do anything else for himself, like stand up or get in and out the car. So I helped him upstairs, laid him down. He, he wasn't feeling comfortable laying down. So I set him in a chair. And he was like, man, you need to call your mom. I need to, I need to go, I need to go to the, the hospital. This is serious. And so I helped him down the steps, got him in the car. And usually whenever he would leave or, you know, he'll be back, back and forth. We had this thing. He would always dap me up and say, I'll, I'll see you, see you, in the, see you later, son. But this time when I helped him in the car, he looked at me and we didn't, we didn't do any of that. And I knew then, like, it's the last time my dad is, is coming home. So they admitted him to the hospital, and I was right. That was the last time he was, he, uh, he was at home because the cancer had spread it so bad that the doctors couldn't do anymore. It was probably a week, a week later, um, February, actually February 14th, me and him and my little brother, we were sitting watching the All-Star game. Me and my brother stepped out for one moment. We had our, you know, we spent our time with him and we stepped out one moment because the nurse wanted to um, wanted to change him and things like that. So we stepped out for a moment and my mom actually went back in and she said, nurse, something's not right. And at that moment, my dad had passed away. At, at that point, I was I was completely done. I was done with God, faith, and church. I stopped coming to church. Um, I stopped answering, and, you, and usually I'm always answering. I stopped answering uh, Chris Derby's text messages and phone calls. I wasn't texting back Pastor Chris, and I was just I was done with it all. Now I only I only agreed to meet with them. I think I was only because I was hungry. Like you know what, I, I'll sit down and I'll meet with you guys and we'll talk. So going going through that after I had that that talk with uh, Pastor Christian and Zerby, um, I, that next Sunday I actually went back to church. I actually went. I told him I'll come, and I went back to church. But then that Sunday, I just it just stuck out to me. Pastor Christian said, "How could someone know you if you never spent any personal time with them, getting to know them?" After sitting down and reflecting on my life, I realized that I, I didn't have my own personal relationship with Christ, um, that my parents' relationship didn't filter down to me or my siblings. We had to establish our own relationships with uh, Christ. And the entire time, I was just going to church, going through emotions, show up on Sunday, leave on Sunday, forget what I what I just learned, and just, you know, just churching, just, just going through the motions. That entire time, I just knew even though I didn't put a whole lot of trust in God at that time, I knew that my dad was a strong believer. So I just knew that God was gonna pull him out of this and he was gonna be able to tell this just amazing story to anybody to listen. 
I beat stage four cancer when it was at its worst. God is miraculous. He can do anything. But my dad always told me, and he told everybody, every time they come talk to him, he said, my sickness would not end in death. And then he died. I'm like, that doesn't, that doesn't even make sense. Like now, you don't, you don't even have a story to tell. But once I started thinking, I sat down and I started studying. I was like, man, this entire time, it wasn't my dad's story to tell. Because as I went through all the events that had taken place after his death, just, just for me, I was like, man, this is my story to tell how God has brought me through all this, how he has brought peace into my life. And, you know, I've given my heart to him. Like, it's been my story the whole time. And my dad was right. This sickness didn't end in death because myself and my family were still here to, to tell the story of how God came into all of our lives and he's healed us all. I did find Jesus through through my dad's death because through that whole time while he was going through it, no matter who walked in into the door or his room, he was encouraging them. Sitting back reflecting, I was like, man, he didn't waver on that. He he all and you know, my mom had to share that, how he would say, T it's time to go home. At night when she, you know they were having their time together when she stayed overnight, she was like, T it's my time to go home. I know exactly where I'm going. And I was like, man, that's that's so encouraging and so powerful that even on my dad's deathbed, he never lost his faith or ever got angry at God. No matter how bad he still wanted to be here with us, he knew ultimately where home was and he knew he would be healed. And I took that and I was like, there has to be something out there greater for me in my life. That's where I just developed my relationship with Christ. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto every man to face death and after death judgment. It's the one appointment we can't avoid. And when it's your time, are you ready? Are you as confident in Ricky Hicks? As, are you as confident as Ricky Hicks that when that time is called, you're going home? Because you can be if you would put your faith in Jesus. Jesus is the only person in history who's proven to have the power to bring dead things to life. And Jesus is the only person in history who has promised that if you will place your faith in Him, He will place that power within you. So what are you waiting for? If you've not stopped your life to redirect it to follow Jesus for both now and for eternity, why wait another moment?